I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles. We're just going to get right into it this morning. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 13. We're going to look at two verses specifically in John chapter 13, verses 33 and 34. And if you are new with us, we're in this series that we've entitled Ecclesia. That may be, a, may be a word that you have never heard before in your life, but it's a significant word. And we've been looking at the significance over the past three weeks and, and now today no, not being an exception on what that word means. It's actually a Greek word if you didn't know. And in the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And that word ekklesia means this, a group of people called out for a particular purpose. And it's the word that is translated in our English church. In fact, every time you look at the New Testament, every time you see the word church, it's that word, ecclesia. And the reason why we are emphasizing that word and going over the meaning of that word every week, the reason why we've entitled it this series that we've been walking through is because what we're answering in this series is who are we and what has God called us to? And all of that stems from that word ecclesia. Because if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and I don't want to be remiss that anyone in here knows what I mean by that word. In other words, if you're someone who has come to a place in their life that realizes that it's not about the good that I can do to have a relationship with the Lord, to have a home in heaven awaiting for me, but it's only by placing my trust in Jesus' perfect life, perfect death, resurrection for my sins, that I can have a relationship with a holy God, that I can have a relationship with the Lord today, that I know that when I pass from this life to the next, that I'll be with Jesus forever in heaven, that if that's you today, then guess what? You are a part of Christ's church. Doesn't matter if you go to Salem Chapel, doesn't matter if you go to another church in this area, in this state, in this nation, or in this world. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you are a part of his church, capital C. But we just haven't become a part of this church to do nothing. Like we just haven't been saved by God so that we can sit in this auditorium in the air conditioning and sing some amazing songs and have our spirits uplifted and open up God's word like we're doing this morning and, and walk out of here and saying, man, that was really good. I really needed to hear that. That really convicted me, challenged me, encouraged me, whatever it may do, what God may do in your life. That's not where it stops. Like when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, yes. Praise God, I've been saved from my sin. I have a relationship with him. I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me to give me the strength to do what God wants me to do. Praise God, I know I have an assurance that if my life is taken from me today, that I know exactly where I'm going. I'm going into the Lord's presence in heaven. Praise God for all of that. But if that's where God wanted it to stop, here's what would be awesome is literally today, if I was sitting where you're sitting and I wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ and I was like, man, I want that. I want to place my trust in Jesus Christ. Stop relying on what I can do, but in what Jesus has done. And I say, yes, Lord, I believe. I place my trust in you. I repent of my sin. Boom, I'm in heaven. It'd be pretty awesome. So if you're like, I would love that right now. So why does God leave us on this earth? Because we have a purpose. Yes, we've been called out but we've been called out for a purpose. 
And I'm so thankful for the people who call this place their home, the way that you serve, the way that you wear the name tags and you welcome people, the way that we have ushers that help show people where to sit, show people even where the bathrooms are, all those amazing things. I am so thankful for the children's workers right now that are watching your kids right now. You should be even more thankful. Like, I'm so thankful for all of those things, all the things that happen because you're plugged into this place. But listen to me. Part of the reason why we're walking through this is so that you don't fall into the trap to thinking that that's where your purpose stops. But we have been called out to be equipped, to be made disciples of Jesus, but to also be mobilized out into the places where we live, where we work, where we play, whatever our hobbies are, that our purpose is to not just be part of the church, but our purpose is to be the church. So we identified what our purpose is, the way that we articulated the very first week of this series, and we articulated it this way. In fact, you, can't, you cannot see it when you walk in this place because it's on the sign right when, before you walk in the main doors. We articulate the purpose that God has given us in Matthew 28 this way, to glorify God by making and mobilizing disciples who represent, that word represent means to speak and act on delegated authority. Whose authority? My authority? Your authority? No, Christ's authority. What are we called to represent? The gospel to who? To every man, woman, and child. You know what's awesome about that phrase? Is because it leaves no one out. I can't say, not that man, not that woman, not that child. No, no, no. Every man, woman, and child. And so for the past, this being the third week, we've been looking at our values. What are the values? What are the things that we believe that as we value these things as our own, we will see that mission become more and more accomplished for God's glory. Well, the first one we looked at was God glorifying in all we do. Last week, we looked at gospel-centered in all we do. Here's the third one that we're gonna look at today. Loving one another in all we do. Now, I've said this every week, and you'll hear me say it for the next three weeks, that we want these values to be more than things that you see hanging on a wall when you leave this auditorium. But when we want, we want these values to be the values of the people that call this place their home. That the mission state for, statement for my life is this church's mission statement. Why? Because the church isn't an organization. It's not a building. It is what? A group of people called out for a particular purpose. That the values of this place are my values. That if you were to say, man, do you have a certain values by which you operate your life? I would say, yes, I do. You want to know what they are? God glorifying in all I do. Gospel centered in all I do. Loving one another in all I do. Next week, disciple making in all I do. The last week of this series, missionally driven in all I do do. So the title of the message this morning, if you're taking notes, is that value that we are looking at today, loving one another in all we do. So let's look at these verses in John chapter 13. And as I've done every week, because we've been jumping from passage to passage in the scriptures that support these values, today's no different. So let me give you a context for where we find ourselves in John chapter 13. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. We know that passage probably pretty well if we've grown up in church at all or spent any time in church at all or if you call this place your home. Jesus just finished doing an amazing task of showing his disciples what it looks like to be a servant, 
a servant leader, and he washes their feet, and he's in the upper room, which means these are some of the last moments that Jesus has with his disciples before he goes to the cross hours later. So look at what Jesus says here, and we'll start in verse 33. He says, little children, it's a term of endearment, yet a little while I am with you. So in other words, I'm just with you for a little bit more. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now, so, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So I doubt the disciples even really understood the significance of what Jesus was saying here. But what he's saying here is, I'm about to go to the cross. And you're going to wonder why I left you. And so then he comes to verses 34 and 35. We're going to spend the time this morning. Look at what he says. A new commandment. You ought to circle that word new in your Bible. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, what is this? Loving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if one of the values of our church is loving one another in all we do, then I hope that you're asking this question. I hope you're asking this, how do I know that I value that? Because chances are in a crowd this size, there's very few of you that have never heard that you are to love one another. It's all over the scriptures. We spent an entire summer looking at one, the one another's in the New Testament, one of those being loving one another. So I doubt there's many in here that this would not be new knowledge to you, that this is something that you ought to do. But what I want to help us answer is, how do I know that I'm really valuing this? How do I know that I'm really seeing this as important in my life? And so I want to give you three characteristics that will help us from God's word to determine if we are valuing this in our lives. So the first one is found, can we look at verse 34 again? I know I just read it, but we can't read this enough, right? Look at the beginning of, part, far, beginning part of verse 34. It says, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another. He says, a new commandment. Now, if you have your thinking caps on, which you should, because you're at the 11 o'clock service, not the nine. You're thinking to yourself, this isn't new. Jesus said this a bunch. I mean, this is in the Old Testament, right? Like Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor as yourself. I remember there was something somewhere in the Gospels where Jesus was asked by someone, what's the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus responded to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he said, the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So why does Jesus call this a new commandment? And if you're thinking that way, you're thinking correctly because that's Matthew 22 where Jesus says that, Leviticus 19. And then in Matthew 22, verse 40, Jesus says this, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, love, love is the summation of all the law. Like if you look at the Ten Commandments, you could say they can be divided on emphasizing love for God and love for others. But what Jesus is saying here is love is the summation of the law. And so if you're here and you're like, well, what in the world? Why is that a 
new commandment, then you're asking the right question, and we're going to answer that this morning. But here's the first characteristic that I want you to understand, because Jesus says to his disciples in that upper room, disciples, I want to give you a new commandment. In other words, listen up. So here's the first characteristic. Number one, loving one another is my priority rather than a preference. Because a lot of us view it like that. We view it as a preference, don't we? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's in the Bible. That's something that's, that's kind of a standard in how I should interact with one another and how I should interact with my wife and interact with my kids and interact in my friendships and interact with pretty much everybody. Yeah, I got that, but it's not a priority. You know what? It's a preference. But Jesus says, no, 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 it's not a preference. It's a command. It needs to be a priority. Now, I already said they're in the upper room. Like, this is Jesus' last moments with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And so this is a time where Jesus really is saying, disciples, I want you to listen up. Can we, can we just, in our minds, go to that upper room? Like, you've heard me say this before. When we're walking through narratives, I think it's so important that we try to put ourselves in the story. So let's do that. Let's go to the upper room. Let's just imagine that we're sitting there, and the disciples are there, and they're lounging, and they're eating bread, and they're eating the wine, and they've just had their, their worlds rocked because Jesus, the one who's created their feet, has just washed their feet. And now Jesus says, here's some final instruction, guys. I want you to listen to this. Now, if someone was to ask my opinion, which they're not, and they're not asking yours either, but I would think to myself, this would be a pretty good time, Jesus, for you to do some review. Not for you to introduce some new information. Like, this is time to review. Like, think about it. Those of you who are parents, how many parents we got in the room? Probably the vast majority of you, yes. How many of you thumbs up? Let's do a little survey. Thumbs up if you think review is good to do with your kids. If any of you are not raising your thumb, we have a parenting class tonight at 6.30. <laughs> we all would say that. Review is important. Review is good. We need to be reminded of what we're told so we don't forget. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Like, can you imagine what the disciples may have thought? Obviously, the scriptures don't tell us, so anything that we're going to say right now is speculation, but, but let's just think you're sitting there, and Jesus is like, okay, a new commandment I want to give to you, and all of a sudden, the ears perk up, and they're like, well, Jesus is probably going to teach us something on prayer, like something that we need to do with prayer, because we see how important that is to Jesus. Every time he does something, a miracle, whatever it is, he's always getting away with the Father afterwards. He isolates himself. He wants to get alone with the Lord. He's, we've asked him how to teach us to pray. He's told us how to pray. Maybe he's going to teach us about prayer. Or maybe they're like, man, Jesus is such an amazing teacher. He's the best and greatest teacher we've ever heard. I mean, we're just captivated when he talks. And, and man, I want that. And, and maybe Jesus is going to give us five tips so that your crowd doesn't go to sleep. Be like, sign up for that class. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Or maybe they wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been out of the norm to say, man, I know. Man, Jesus is all the time telling us, oh, you of little faith. So maybe Jesus is going to teach us how to strengthen our faith like we're tuned in. But we know that Jesus doesn't say any of those things, does he? We just read it, right? What does Jesus do? He says to them, 
A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. To put it in our language this morning, I want to stress to you, disciples, how love needs to be a priority in your life. Love needs to be a core value in your life. But if you're inquisitive like me, you're like, yeah, but why did Jesus call it a new command? Because we've just established this is not the first time he's talked about love. Well, if you're asking that, I'm so glad that you're asking that because let me answer it. And let me answer it according to God's word because the reason why Jesus calls this a new command is because he is mentioning the new object of the command, who the command needs to be extended to, and the measure by which the command needs to be obeyed. Has everybody got that? So there's a new object and there's a new measure. Well, what's the new object? Notice Jesus says in comparison to what he said in Matthew 22, you need to love, what does he say? One another. See, in Matthew 22, in quoting the Old Testament, he says you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So some of you may know this. You know, the Pharisees were great at taking the law and finding all little loopholes on how they could obey the law but still get to do whatever they wanted to do. And one of the ways that they did that was with this love your neighbor as yourself because they would determine this person's my neighbor and this person isn't my neighbor. And oftentimes what, was, what would happen is they would say, well, I don't like this person, therefore they're not my neighbor. It'd be awesome if it worked that way, right? Ah, this person isn't like me, they're not my neighbor. I don't like this person, I'm kind of at odds with this person, I don't like what they did to me, they're not my neighbor. And so they would look for loopholes to get around that. So when Jesus says to the disciples, you ought to love one another, he was setting a totally different standard. Because the Jews had this elitist mindset that they were better than everyone else. I mean, that's how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. That's how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. So they viewed themselves as we're just a little bit higher than everybody else. But what's interesting, the Gentiles viewed the Jews the same way. I mean, the Greeks saw the Jews as barbarians. They saw them as less than. So you have all of this prejudicial type environment going on at this time, which really isn't any different than any other time in our history, isn't any different today. So you had the Jews hating the Gentiles. And you had the Gentiles or the Greeks or whoever wasn't Jew hating the Jews. And then you also had masters and slaves and you hated the slaves because they were masters and the masters hated the slaves and viewed the slaves as less than them. So you had that going on. And not only did you have that going on, but women were viewed so much less than than men. So you have all of this prejudicial type environment going on. And when Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, now all of a sudden, I can't exempt myself from that. Because you're another, like I'm another. So it's not just my neighbor, it's one another. See, the foundational reality that Jesus is doing here is he's saying, disciples, a new commandment. There's no more division. There's no one saying you can't come to this table. 
Because what Jesus is saying is, you're not defined by your geography, you're not defined by how much money you make or how little money you make, you're not defined by your background, you're not defined by what language you speak, you're not defined by your race or whatever it is. No, 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 the cross or the ground is level at the cross. Disciples, you are called to love one another. It's a new commandment, and I'm defining the object different than what you've heard before. I try to think of this in big terms, like how significant this is. And so I was thinking, well, what's the biggest thing on our planet? What's the tallest thing on our planet? You know what it is? Mount Everest. It's the tallest mountain in the world. And that's what love is. That's the relational capacity that each one of us have the opportunity to show. I mean, just a little fact-finding, if you are geography buffs, and if you are, you already know this. So the rest of us, let me just give you a little bit of information. Here's how tall Mount Everest is, 29,029 feet. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll watch a documentary or I'll even see that movie. I don't know how long it came out, Everest or whatever. And I'm like, man, that'd be kind of awesome to climb up to Mount Everest. I even one time was sitting there watching some documentary saying to Lori, Lori, would you ever let me climb Mount Everest? I think you know what the answer to that question was. <laughs> I still wasn't convinced. I was like, maybe there's a way I could get her to say yes. But then I started Googling how much it was to climb Mount Everest and then I was like, well, I'm not spending that to risk my life. But so you're like, Johnny, you're nuts. Like you've just, I've just totally now lost you. But regardless of how you view that mountain, one thing you know, it's huge. And that's the impact that I can have by loving one another. Now loving what I determine is my neighbor but loving one another. See, there's three English words, or three Greek words, for the one English word we have for love. I'm probably not giving most of you any new information, and the reason why it's probably not new information is because of that fact. It's hard for us to understand the significance when we read the New Testament, when we see the word love, because there's three Greek words that emphasize different things and different aspects of love. There's phileo, that's kind of the brotherly love. It's not that awesome. You know, it's kind of like, hey, you love me and I love you. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. It's more of a transactional type of thing. Not a bad thing, it's just not an amazing thing. There's eros love. That's that physical intimacy type of the way that one shows love. But then there's the word agape, which, how many of you have heard of that word before? Raise your hand. That's what I thought, majority of us. It's not an unknown word. Listen, there's churches that even name themselves after this word. But here's the significance of this word if you've never heard it before. It means sacrificial love. Not selfish love, selfless love. It's a supernatural love. It's the type of love that literally communicates this. If God doesn't give me the strength to love this way, I can't. It's that type of love. 
Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Keep your finger in John 13. Let's just take a moment just to see how this love plays out. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13. Listen, you could never darken the door of a church, and you've probably heard these words before. But let me just encourage you to push through the familiarity of this. And let's bring ourselves back to the significance of this word, which, by the way, if you were wondering, Jesus uses this word in John 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Can we just stop there? What is Jesus basically saying? This is the Johnny translation, not that that would ever be a great translation, but let me just summarize it this way. If you are not loving one another in all you do, you are white noise to someone. Everybody, anyone, or it's just not everybody. I'm going to date myself. But some people in this room familiar with the Peanuts cartoon? Yeah, every time I read 1 Corinthians 13, 1, you know what I think of? I think of that teacher, right? You know what I'm talking about? In fact, if you do, would you just make the sound with me when she talks? What does she do? Oh, you, many of you have seen the Peanuts cartoon. I remember the first time I was a kid watching that, I was like, what is going on? Like, I thought the problem was me. But that's a modern day illustration of what Paul is saying here. That if I'm not valuing loving one another in all I do, everything else that I do doesn't matter. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have, do not have love, say the next three words with me. I am what? Nothing. Those are pretty, some pretty amazing gifts to have in verse 2. But without love, they're nothing. Then Paul's going to give some specific things that love is. What does he say in verse 4? Love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. Verse 5, it does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Read the first three words of verse 8 with me. What does it say? Love never fails. Jesus is telling his disciples, guys, I'm giving you a new commandment. It's significant. It's important. It's vital. It needs to be a priority. It's not a preference. Why? Because love never fails. It's the thing. It's the thing that can break down all boundaries. It's the relational dynamite to you in a good way. You know, I've used a lot of tools by God's grace, I've been in ministry 19 years. I've used a lot of tools in ministry. Though I'm not proud to say, there's been times as I look back on ministry that I've used the figurative hammer in ministry. Oh, that's the situation? Take care of that. Not proud of that. I've had to confess that. But oftentimes, I've used, I've used the figurative hammer to deal with things. So I look at all those years of ministry, I probably also would say, man, I've used a figurative drill, like, like I'm going to get straight to the heart of this thing. This person's saying this, this person's saying that, this husband's doing this, this wife's doing that. I don't have time to sit here and you'd arrive at the conclusion on your own. Not proud of that. 
I'm proud of that. But I've been guilty of that. Been guilty of that. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? Love is the most powerful tool in advancing God's purposes and God's kingdom. It's a priority. Look at what else he says in verse 34. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. See, here's a second characteristic if I am valuing loving one another and all I do. Number two, loving one another is motivated by the gospel rather than an agenda. And I can be motivated to love one another in what I'm doing. You can put a pad behind a commercial or behind a video and it can move my emotions about something and I'd be like, oh man, I need to do that. I'm not doing that. And I can be motivated by guilt. You can make me feel guilty and I can be like, yep, I'm gonna do that. And it may last for a couple weeks. What I've found is when I'm motivated by guilt, it lasts for a little bit, but it doesn't last long. And I can be motivated even worse by what I can get. Oh, that person needs something? Well, man, I know what that person does, or I know what that person has, or I know what that person influence that person has. So for sure, I'm going to love that person because I know at some point I'm going to need them to do something for me. So for sure, I'm going to love them and what I do. But it's motivated by an agenda. See, the significance of what Jesus says here, not only is this new because of the object, one another, but it's also new because of the measure. Because what is the measure? Jesus says, just as I have loved you. Can you imagine what the disciples are? They're sitting there, they're eating their bread, they're drinking their wine, and all of a sudden Jesus says, just as I have loved you. Wait a minute, did he say that right? Like we know the way that Jesus loves. I can remember when he wandered into Samaria and we were like, Jesus, what are you doing? And he talked with that woman who's been married to five husbands and the person that she was with wasn't even her husband. Like, we know how Jesus loves. And we remember when he went to Zacchaeus, that tax collector who was betraying us as his people and he was selling the Jews out and Jesus went into his house. Like, I didn't even want him to believe in Jesus, but we saw Jesus love there. Like, all of a sudden, the measure totally changed of what they saw love to be. And when we think of that phrase, just as I have loved you, you know what that does to you and it does to me? It totally eliminates the thoughts, I've loved that person long enough. No more. Man, I've been true enough in this. I am done I've loved her long enough, I've loved him long enough, I've loved them long enough. Like all of a sudden when you look at those words, just as I have loved you, I can't ask that anymore. Why? Because I have to bring myself back to how Jesus loved me. I have to bring myself back to the gospel. I have to bring myself back to what the gospel says. Romans 5, 8, that in the midst of my sin, that's when Christ died for me that there's never a point in my relationship with the Lord that Christ says to me, you better not do that again. If you do, I'm not loving you anymore. 
There's never a point in my life where, I'm, where, where Christ is like, no, 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 you've reached the extent of my love. You squandered it all. I have none left. No more. I'm done. Jesus doesn't say that. Why? Because the gospel says that Jesus loves us with an agape love, a selfless love, a sacrificial love, a, a love that says, God, I can't do this without you. It's gospel motivated to love one another, not Guilt, not what you can get, not any other motivation, but it's reminding myself, wait a minute, I love one another because that's the type of love that Jesus had for me. Got people in the room that love theater? Raise your hand if you do. I've grown to love it more and more. Can't always say that. But how many of you are familiar with the play Les Mis? Right? Some of you, most of you. It's very popular. And when you think about that play, that show, Les Mis, the character is Jean Valjean, right? Jean Valjean. I remember the first time I ever heard that name, I was like, that is not a creative name for someone to write. But it's to get across the point, because as you... As that play opens up, you have Jean Valjean, and he's in prison, and he's been in prison for 19 years, and he's there doing hard prison labor. But Jean Valjean is given parole, and Jean Valjean gets out of prison, but the problem is, is he has nothing, and everywhere he goes, he has a mark that says that he's been in prison, so he's destitute, he has no food, he's starving, he has no place to lay his head, and so you find himself that all of a sudden he ends up finding a dark place and he falls asleep, and when he wakes up in the morning, he realizes that he's been, living, he's been sleeping where the dogs sleep, but all of a sudden he runs into this priest, and this priest brings Jean Valjean into that church and he gives him a meal and he gives him new clothes and he gives him a comfortable bed to sleep in. And this priest shows Jean Valjean such tremendous love. But Jean Valjean, I mean, he's been a criminal for 19 years. It's all he knows. It's how he thinks. It's what he does. It's, in essence, who he is. He all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, starts to steal all the silver from the cabinets inside of the church, and he loads it in a bag, and he goes out, and he runs out escaping because he wants to sell these things, but he's caught by the authorities, and the authorities drag him back in in the morning in front of the priest, ready for the priest to say to him, okay, I knew that I shouldn't have loved you. I knew that you were going to do that. After all, once a criminal, always a criminal. But if you know the story, the priest doesn't do that, does he? What the priest does is he walks over to the table and he grabs two silver candlesticks and he says to Jean Valjean, he says, you forgot the candlesticks. And he tells the authorities, this man hasn't stolen these things, I've given these, these things to him. And Jean Valjean avoids prison. And it has such a profound impact on his life. Because for the rest of his life and the rest of that play, Jean Valjean is committed to show others the same love that he was shown. Now, I don't know if Victor Hugo was a believer, but what a tremendous picture of what Christ has done for you and me. Because I was a criminal because of my sin. I was a sinner. I had no hope. The wages of my sin was death, Romans 6, 23, 
But see, Jesus Christ showed me grace. He showed me love when I was undeserving of it. And he brought me in and he put on a new clothes on me. And he gave me a new life and he gave me a new hope and he gave me a relationship with a holy God. Why? So that I could keep that to myself? No, but so that I could show that same love to others that I encounter with. Jesus says, just as I have loved you. He says, you are also to love one another. Now, let me just mention a couple of things with this idea. See, some of us are sitting in here, and we're like, man, I'm so glad Johnny's preaching on loving one another because it's about time somebody shows me some love. I'm ready. My tank is empty. I'm ready for someone to fill it today. In fact, I can already point the person out in the crowd that I'm hoping at the end of this service they'll finally show me some love. Can I just stress to you that the awesome thing when Jesus says, just as I have loved you, that it's not, this command doesn't apply to me based on how much money I have, how big a house I live in, how little I have, whatever my situation is. No, no, no. If Jesus has loved me and I've received that love, then I am not exempt from showing it to others. It's not about what I can get, but about what I can give. And it's not a compromising love. When Jesus says, just as I have loved you, Jesus never compromises the truth. Yes, he met with the woman at the well, but he dealt with her sin. Yes, he met with Zacchaeus, who was an outcast, but he dealt with his sin. So it's not about being this inclusive-minded that it doesn't matter the way that you live and the way that I live because we're all going to heaven one day, this universalist type of idea. No, 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 that's not love because we know the truth. But it's loving in such a way that our truth has meaning because we're loving. Here's the last thing and we're done. Look at the way Jesus closes out verse 35. It says, by this, I love this. We already said what this was. But can we just emphasize what Jesus didn't say? He doesn't say, by your faith, will people know that you're my disciples. But that's an important thing. He doesn't say by how much money you give, people will know you're my disciple, though I don't minimize that. We ought to be generous. He doesn't say by how much you know, people will know you're my disciples, though we need to know more about God's word. You can see where I'm going this. What does Jesus say? By your love. Here's the third characteristic that's evident in our lives when this is our value. Here it is, number three. Loving one another is essential rather than optional to my witness. It's not optional. It's essential. Love is the distinguishing characteristic of a disciple. It is the distinguishing characteristic that I am growing in my discipleship. I cannot be growing and being made a disciple of Jesus without loving one another in all I do. And I for sure cannot be mobilized to go out into my community and represent Jesus without loving one another in all I do. Listen to these words that I wrote. Love is the greatest thing, the greatest. Why? Because God the Father says so. Jesus the Son models it. The Holy Spirit is prompting us toward it. Love is the greatest thing. 
Love is the greatest force. Love transforms the heart of everyone it touches. Love softens anger. Love silences criticism and gossip. Love blesses and beautifies and builds up every person in its path. Love is the greatest. Love reaches across the chasm of hurt and misunderstanding. Love brings healing and forgiveness and hope to the weary. Love keeps giving even when no one notices or thanks. Love keeps going even when the end is not in sight. Love keeps growing in the heart of everyone who believes that God's way is best. God's way is the way of love because love is the greatest. And we never do anything so godlike and great as when we choose to love. May this be our value as a church. When people come in these doors, it doesn't matter where they've been. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter where they're struggling. There's love here. There's grace here. There's forgiveness here. There's help here. There's hope here. Why? Because that's what we do. We love one another. Key phrase in all we do.